You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Sugar makes our lives sweeter. A spoonful makes the medicine go down. You catch more flies with honey than vinegar. And if every task were as simple as taking candy from a baby, well, the sales of Xanax would drop. But why was the baby eating candy in the first place? Why are any of us? One thing that's certain, the sweet stuff is hard to escape. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology, We devote one episode a month to critical thinking, and in this episode of Skeptic Check, the case against sugar. Could something so pleasing actually be bad for us? We evolved to enjoy the taste of sugar, and after all, our cells depend on it for energy. But a growing corpus of scientific research points to deleterious health effects. Science hasn't yet actually proven that sugar kills, But research links it to a suite of diseases, and now some researchers are labeling Alzheimer's as type 3 diabetes. You decide if the case against sugar is strong enough to prompt you to put down that donut. But meanwhile, what's the role of industry-funded science in sweetening this deal? Newly uncovered documents reveal that 50 years ago, the industry paid researchers to skew the science. It's skeptic check, not so sweet. Investigative reporter Gary Taubes has reported extensively on the soaring rates of heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and obesity in the United States, a phenomenon that's now being echoed throughout the world. He has also carefully outlined an argument for why the cause is not, as we've been led to believe, our couch potato lifestyle. Gary, what do I have before us on the table here? You have a piece of what looks like uh, either rye bread or sourdough, uh, half a cup of sugar, uh, some M&Ms. Yes, which is the healthiest for me to dive into? Uh, That would be an excellent question. I have to go for the bread. And why is that? Okay, because I am not a fan of sugar itself. That is recognized as an understatement by anyone familiar with Mr. Taub's reporting. As an investigative journalist for 30 years, covering nutrition science for the last 20, He has been reporting on the growing body of research that points to the deleterious health effects of sugar. 
He didn't have much choice at Molly's table, as he uh, will point out. Bread is a carbohydrate, and carbohydrates include sugar. Sugar is, in fact, the simplest type of carbohydrate, which also includes starches and dietary fiber. How do you recognize sugar? Well, anything that ends in O-S-E is a sugar. Lactose, maltose, glucose, fructose, and sucrose. The white stuff on my table is table sugar, or sucrose. The candy is made with fructose, which occurs naturally in fruit and makes things taste sweet. Although some vegetables also have naturally occurring fructose, by the way. Glucose is the primary molecule, providing energy to plant and animal cells. Many carbohydrates are converted to glucose by the body. But sugar, says Gary Taubes, is metabolized differently. If you ate the bread, your gut is going to digest the carbohydrates, break it down into glucose. That glucose uh, will pretty much go straight into your bloodstream, and that's blood sugar. When we talk about blood sugar, we're talking about glucose. So your blood sugar is going to go up. Your body's secreting insulin in response to that blood sugar, and pretty much every cell in the body is going to take up that glucose and use it for fuel. Hey, other Gary, want some candy? No, thanks. I just had some toast. Okay, more for me. When you go for the candy, you've got the glucose, which is going to have the same fate as it would from the bread. Then you've got the fructose, which is going to go primarily to the liver. And liver cells are going to metabolize. And some of it's going to end up as glucose. And depending on the dose at which it hits the liver, some of it will end up as fat. So how are you feeling, Sarah? Really warm and full of candy. Sugar high, impending. <laughs> Since Sarah opted for the delicious simple sugar rather than the complex carbohydrate, she gets a fructose hit, a spike in blood sugar causing a high and her liver goes to work. Because while glucose can be used by virtually every cell in your body, fructose can only be metabolized by your liver. And that's not the only way that sugar puts our bodies to work. The accusation I make in my book, The Case Against Sugar, is this idea that sugar causes a condition called insulin resistance. Now, insulin resistance is when your body, your cells of your body are resistant to this hormone insulin, so you have to secrete more of it to do the same job. Insulin resistance causes not only diabetes, but, Mr. Taubes asserts, a suite of companion diseases that are now popping up wherever societies have adopted a Western diet. That is, one richer in meats and oils and sugars, which he says is the primary assault on the body. Gary Taubes admits that science can't prove sugar kills, but he says he's made a strong prosecutorial argument in his book, The Case Against Sugar. The summary statement's going to include a description of the crime that's being committed. So the crime that's being committed here, we have to keep our eye on the crime always, is we have uh, epidemics of obesity and diabetes that occur in effectively every population in the world after they transition from whatever their traditional diet is. doesn't matter whether we're talking Southeast Asians living on a lot of rice, Inuits living on caribou and seal meat, uh, any population, you transition to a Western diet and lifestyle, you become affluent, become urbanized, move into big cities, you get epidemics of obesity and diabetes. So there's something about the Western diet and lifestyle that causes it. Now, some of this we know, uh, but there's something else that, a different kind of case that you're making in your book. And you list the fact that there are soaring rates of heart disease and diabetes and there's obesity. 
but we also have asthma and gout, cancer and stroke, and right. these are all on the uptick as well. Now, traditionally, research has identified individual causes for all these ailments. But you believe that what's happening is that there's an overlapping pattern of disease and there's one cause behind it. But before we get to the yeah. single cause, what does it mean to say that these are overlapping patterns of disease? I mean, diabetes is different from cancer, which is different from asthma, isn't right, it? Right, right. So we have, uh, again, and there's a, there's a rich history to, to what I'm talking about here. The modern way to think about this is that obesity and diabetes are associated with a higher risk of a cluster of diseases that are often known as metabolic diseases. So the obese and diabetic are at higher risk of heart disease, they're at higher risk of cancer, they're at higher risk of cerebrovascular disease. All these diseases are known as hypertensive diseases because they tend to associate with high blood pressure. The obese are at high risk of getting gout. Gout is also a hypertensive disease. And researchers who have studied this over the years, and a lot of this research was British because the British had uh, missionary and colonial hospitals all over the world. So they had researchers, clinical investigators all over the world who had learned, had trained in England or had trained in Europe and then were sent off to Africa or South America or the South Pacific or Asia and were running these hospitals and were saying, look, we see an entirely different spectrum of diseases in populations that are not eating Western diets than are. And like I said, those diseases happen to all be diseases that associate with obesity, with diabetes, with high blood pressure, with this condition called insulin resistance. And that includes cancer and Alzheimer's. So even though they're all different diseases, they all have some very common characteristics. I was surprised to read in your book that some researchers refer to Alzheimer's as type 3 diabetes. Yes, and this is Alzheimer's. Uh, one of the fronts in Alzheimer's research is looking at the influence of using glucose for fuel in the brain and insulin in the brain and the role it could play in the cognitive defects of Alzheimer's disease, the memory problems, the creation of these tau particles and the, the amyloid beta plaques. And, you know, again, what I'm doing in this book is saying when you have a cluster of disease, and this gets back, why one cause. So the conventional thinking is we get fat because we consume too many calories. We get diabetes because we consume too many calories and we're sedentary. Before we start picking a different cause for each one, we should assume that they're all caused by, you know, one or a few agents that travel together in Western diets and lifestyles. And that's sugar. And sugar and refined grains. And sugar is the primary one. Now, what is the evidence, though, that, um, and this is where it gets difficult, doesn't it? What is the hard evidence that sugar is behind these health woes that we see spreading globally? Okay, and this is when you ask for the summary to the jury. Now we're going to get the summary. Um, sugar's always at the scene of the crime on population levels. So again, we have all these... Give me an example. Give okay, an example. so we have, you know, the idea is the crime is obesity and diabetes epidemics. So for those people back in the 1920s, for instance, there was a debate about cancer as a disease of civilization. And some people said, well, uh, maybe it's the meat that we consume in England in particular compared to the amount of meat they consume in Africa where a lot of these clinical investigators are. And some of these clinicians said, yeah, wait, but do you see the same increase in cancer rates in Native Americans? 
you know, particularly the Plains Indians, were almost exclusively meat eaters. And you see the same increase in Inuit, and they were almost exclusively animal product consumers, so we can't blame it on animal products. So that's eliminating a suspect. That's eliminating. So what I'm saying is you can eliminate virtually everything Mm -hmm. except sugar. Can you give an example of the kinds of sugars that are showing up? Just a specific example, either in this country or another country, what sort of sugars were showing up? Well, again, it's always, you know, what we're talking about until recently is first cane sugar and then beet sugar. So if you look at this country, for instance, go back 200 years, the average American was consuming about five pounds of sugar per year. This stuff, this white stuff The white stuff, yeah. So that's about five pounds is about the amount of sugar in a 12-ounce can of Coca-Cola once a week. Okay, so then with the Industrial Revolution, uh, the cost of refining comes way down, the cost of harvesting comes way down, and then the beet sugar industry is created by Napoleon in France, and the beet sugar industry explodes in the second half of the 19th century. And as the costs come down with the Industrial Revolution, you see the founding of the candy industry and the chocolate industry and the ice cream industry and then the soft drink industry. And if you think about it, until every house had a refrigerator and a freezer and until vending machines were created, basically cold soft drinks were something you had to go to a soda fountain to get. That's what soda fountains sold. So not until the 1930s do you start getting cold soft drinks and cold fruit juices in the house, and not until the 1950s do you see the sugary cereal industry explode. 1920 was the first year where per capita sugar availability was over 100 pounds. So it had increased by a factor of 20 from, say, the first decade of the 19th century to 1920. And then it slowly goes up from there on. But simultaneously, the kind of people who are consuming it is changing because it goes from being a luxury to being something that's targeted for children. So if nothing else, if you just think of the time that this substance has to do its evil, whatever you want to call it, in the human body. Um, It's one thing if adults are getting it. It's another thing if children are getting it from the time they're two years old or one year old, actually, in formulas for infants. By the 1960s, I would think most of the American population wouldn't go more than, you know, a few hours with the same dose of sugar that they would have gone a week between um, 150 years earlier. We'll continue on with this, just as a sidebar. To what degree we've evolved to um, be able to process sugar? So... Our ancestors on the savannah, if you came across some honey or maybe if you came across an orange, you would eat it. It would taste delicious. So we could digest it. It's not as though humans can't digest sugar. But now it's ubiquitous, the amount of sugar. Well, that's the thing. So, toxicologists will say the dose makes the poison. And if you think about uh, medications as a metaphor of pharmaceuticals, when we talk about, you know, let's say we have two different drugs, we don't know what they do. So, one of the things we care about is the dose, clearly, because whatever they do, we can assume the larger the dose, the more they're going to do it. But we're going to care about what organ they're metabolized in. We're going to care about what cells metabolize them. We're going to care about how the body responds to the metabolism of those two drugs. We're going to care about the speed at which they're metabolized. We're going to care about the dose, not just the amount we give you, but the timing of the dose. Like, is it once a day? Is it three times a day? Is it a time-released capsule? And all these things are going to have an effect on what these 
drugs do in our body. In nutrition science, we got obsessed with this idea that the only thing that mattered was the calories, the dose of the food. And so one of the things that happened when we refined sugar cane into white powdered sugar and then put it in sugary beverages and put it in all these other foods that we're consuming it all day long is not only, sure, we were evolved to deal with fructose, the question is, did we evolve to deal with both sugar and the fructose in it, but did we evolve to deal with it in a sort of steady stream all day long in these various packages and in liquids, sugary beverages, liquid sugars? You, you also make the case that um, insulin resistance takes time, but when we're young, we're able to process it a little bit better, and then this insulin resistance develops over time? Is that it? Is well, that... that's the argument I'm yeah. making, and that's, so the question is, clearly insulin resistance develops over time. I mean, there are people who are prone to it and people who aren't, and that's probably both a combination of uh, genetics and whether or not our mothers were insulin resistant or had high blood sugar when they were pregnant with us. So it's a phenomenon that can be passed down or exacerbated from generation to generation. I suppose but, the comment of is develops over time is sort of meaningless. I should say over a long time or over, over a lifetime. Everything develops over time. But. Over Yeah, <laughs> and this is comes down to, in the summary, getting back to our summary to the jury, um, one of the arguments against this, I admit this up front, is that the scientific evidence is actually ambiguous for what I'm saying. So what we're studying are diseases, not just insulin resistance, a condition, but diseases like obesity and diabetes that develop very subtly from years year to year to year, and are virtually impossible to study in randomized controlled trials in these sort of rigorous scientific experiments, because we can't put people on different diets and keep them on those diets for 5, 10, 20 years and expect to see meaningful results. So one of the ways people do experiments is they use very large doses over very short periods of time, and then you'll know if what you've seen is peculiar to the exceedingly large doses or peculiar to the very short period of time. They do animal experiments, but then you'll know if what you've seen extrapolates from animals to humans, because animals are not humans. So you end Although up with humans this... humans are animals. Yes, that's a good point. Um, you end up with a... Um, kind of Rorschach block of research that could be interpreted based on the perspective or the bias of the researcher, the journalist, or the nutritionist doing the interpretation. And again, this is why in, in this book I'm arguing that not only should sugar be the prime suspect, inevitably it was the prime suspect. It should remain the prime suspect, and we should treat it as such. Gary Taubes is an investigative reporter and the author of The Case Against Sugar. We'll hear more from him about how dietary fat came to be perceived as the health scourge instead. Plus, how much the sugar industry paid scientists to give them a good health report. It's our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science. Skeptic check. Not so sweet. Sugar is sweet, but the accumulated research about its health consequences leaves a bitter taste. Investigative reporter Gary Taubes has explained why sugar is the culprit behind a suite of diseases. The research has been accumulating for nearly a century, but in the 1950s, the sugar industry began to use questionable tactics to shape public perception of its product. 
Gary Taubes asserts that sugar is the tobacco of the 21st century, but, as he said, studies that can establish a direct causation are difficult to make. So in the 1950s, 1960s, when researchers demonstrated that smokers had a 20-fold increased risk of lung cancer than non-smokers, it was relatively easy to do because you could find smokers and non-smokers. Only 50% of the adult population smoked. And while they had... um, Clearly, there were going to be differences in health consciousness between the smokers and the non-smokers. You still had a significant chunk of non-smokers. And so when you looked at people with lung cancer, what you found was that 85, 90% of them actually had been cigarette smokers. And in the non-smokers, lung cancer was still a exceedingly rare disease. By the 1960s, when we started looking at sugar as a cause of obesity and heart disease and diabetes, everyone was a sugar consumer. And all these diseases had become common diseases, so we didn't have a control group to compare with. If you could find people who didn't eat sugar in the 1960s, they were people like Jack LaLanne, who were, you know, health nuts. And God knows what else they did differently. So even if they lived to be 100, you had no idea whether it was because they didn't eat sugar or because they exercised every day or because they were vegetarians or, you know, who knows what. So you didn't have the comparison group. Everyone was a sugar consumer, and it, all these diseases were now common diseases. Do you consider yourself a health nut? I bet you're a candidate at um, this point. Clearly, at this point, I'm something of a health zealot. I didn't get into this wanting to become <laughs> what I've clearly become. But uh, Well, let me pursue that for a moment. Yeah. There are many other questions about sugar, but, but you have committed yourself to building this case against sugar. You are a journalist, so journalists have to be careful in building a case against anything. Um, I think The Guardian referred to you as a terrier with a bone. So what is driving you? You've pursued this for a long time. Okay, so first of all, I want to discuss this issue of um, the job of the investigative journalist is to continue investigating the story, just like the job of a police detective. You continue doing your investigation until you're pretty confident you know what the answer is. At that point, if your answer differs from that of the conventional wisdom, you're considered biased. But we're supposed to keep going until we get to the point of bias. Daily reporters don't have to do that. They can be balanced as they want. They do the story. They move on. Our job is to continue investigating until we think we know the answer. So in this case, from the 1950s onward, in first the United States and then the world, we embraced a couple of dietary dogmas, nutritional dogmas that determined how basically everything we think about a healthy diet on some level. One is that dietary fat was a cause of heart disease. And the other idea is this idea that we get fat just merely because we take in more calories and we expend. So the assumption is you have a physiological defect, which is people have this accumulation of excess fat. It could be 20 pounds, it could be 300 pounds. And we turned it into an effective behavioral disorder caused by eating too much and sedentary activity, which are both behaviors. Which do lead us to gain weight and are not good for us. Uh, I would argue no. I would argue then that's the point. It's sort of, it's so programmed into our consciousness, this belief system, that obesity, the technical way of discussing it is people would say obesity is an energy balance disorder. It's caused by more energy in than energy out. And I could give you a dozen metaphors. It's like saying poverty is a money balance disorder. 
And that's why you stayed on this, that you haven't felt that, that scientists have really gotten down to the root cause. Well, one of the... It, this is to the question of why you stayed on this. Yeah, on no, this and I was going to say one of the reasons anyone stays on a crusade is because they feel that an injustice is being committed. Okay, so in this case... You know, the two of us could walk through the streets of Oakland and we could look for every obese child we see and then ask the question, why is that child obese? And the conventional wisdom is they're obese because they're taking in more calories than they spend, which ultimately comes down to it's a technical way to say they suffer from gluttony and sloth. And again, this alternative hypothesis, clearly it's a hormonal problem. Nobody accumulates 100 pounds of excess fat because they're a little lazy or a little bit, their appetite's a little bit out of control. And if it's a hormonal defect, you have to fix that hormonal defect. So the thing that keeps you in it is this sense that people are being, in effect, tortured out there by this conventional thinking that it's all about calories, it's about energy, it's about dose, and not the way they would think about any other growth defect. For a long time, there was this understanding that a calorie is a calorie. That's... And now we understand that a sugar calorie is not a regular calorie because sugar has a unique effect on the body. Is that accurate? Well, sugar definitely has a unique effect on the body. So the question should be, why would have anyone have ever thought that a calorie was a calorie? If you've got two nutrients that are metabolized in entirely different organs that provoke entirely different hormonal responses, and you know those hormones play key roles, not just in diabetes, but in regulating fat accumulation, not just in fat cells, but throughout our body, why would you possibly think that the only thing that matters is how many calories you consume? Diabetes is something that we've known about for, for centuries. In the early 20th century, and you provide a chart, yeah. you see that the incidence of diabetes starts to go up around 1912 or so. In the chart I provide from uh, Pennsylvania Hospital in Philadelphia. What is happening and what is changing in 1912, and I believe that was in the United States, what is happening so now that diabetes is slowly no longer becoming a rare disease? And that's what I mean by um, sugar always being the prime suspect. Actually, not only do I provide a chart, I tell the story of Elliot Jocelyn, who uh, young, he became the most famous diabetes clinician of the 20th century, but when he was young, uh, just got his medical degree at Harvard, also looked through the medical records at Mass General Hospital in Boston and saw that same increase beginning actually in Boston about 40 years earlier as sugar consumption starts to increase. And again, a lot of things are changing in the late 19th century, but one of them that's changing dramatically is sugar consumption. And again, not only are we consuming more and more sugar with each passing year, you know, the soft drink industry, like I said, candy, ice cream, chocolate industries all were founded in the 1840s, the soft drink industry in the 1870s, 1880s. So as sugar begins to saturate our lives, physicians are simultaneously seeing these increases in diabetes from, you know, an entire year going by where their hospital would not diagnose a single case to uh, one or two cases to five cases to 10, 50. And I'm sure we can follow that chart all the way through to today when one in 11 Americans has diabetes. I mean, you could imagine if 50 years from now, one in 11 Americans had multiple sclerosis or muscular dystrophy or dengue fever, pick your disease. What happened then in the mid 
20th century so that the spotlight was taken off of sugar as the culprit and it moved on to fat. Or at least there were competing research papers. Maybe sugars were just empty calories or maybe they were a necessary stimulant. And in that case, it would be good, like maybe a cup of coffee. There seemed to be competing research on it. And then at some point, these low-fat diets appeared and sugar seemed to be off the hook. So in the 1920s, sugar gets attacked as a cause of diabetes, and Elliot Jocelyn, because he doesn't understand that sugar's any different than rice, manages to convince the world that it's not. In the 1950s, sugar starts getting attacked for being fattening. Okay, there's a photo in the newspapers of President Eisenhower using saccharin in his coffee, and his doctor has told him sugar's fattening, and the sugar industry puts, I think it was $750,000, huge sum of the time advertising campaign, making the point that there's no such thing as a fattening food, that it's all about calories, which is what the nutritionists and the obesity researchers believe. We should note you've introduced a new character here, which is the sugar industry. Well, now we've introduced the sugar industry into this. So in the 1960s, begins in the 1950s. In the 1960s, this idea that dietary fat causes heart disease begins to get a lot of traction. Researchers for the first time are doing clinical trials studying the possibility that saturated fat causes heart disease. And the media is writing about it, and some very zealous researchers have decided this has to be true. And the competing argument is that sugar causes heart disease. And this is a small, much smaller group of researchers. It tends to be, it's a British argument. And meanwhile, the sugar industry is worried about the fact that they're now being accused after they've kind of taken care of the obesity argument. Now they have to deal with the heart disease argument. So what do you do? If a fringe element of the community says that sugar is the cause of heart disease, you hire researchers, influential researchers who believe fat is the problem, and you have them write reports saying fat is the problem. In the 1970s, when Yudkin and some others still managed to sort of fight back and get the sugar hypothesis taken seriously, then the sugar industry launched sort of a full-scale public relations campaign to combat this anti-sugar sentiment. And again, the way they did it is they hired very influential researchers who believed dietary fat caused heart disease and believed that Yudkin was a quack. And they did. The consensus was that Yudkin was some crazy British guy and there was nothing wrong with sugar. Fat was the problem. And finally, will there be a smoking gun, do you think, when it comes to really pinpointing the deleterious effect of sugar? Um, I can imagine studies now that could provide evidence beyond reasonable doubt. The problem is until you do the studies, you don't know what they'll find. That's one of the you know, challenges of science, and they're expensive. To do them right takes a lot of thought, and unfortunately it takes a significant amount of money. Hopefully the government or the food industry or the sugar industry will decide they're worth funding. Gary Taubes, thank you so much for speaking with us. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Gary Taubes is an investigative reporter. His latest book is The Case Against Sugar. As he said, the sugar industry put its finger on the scale to downplay the role of sugar in making us sick and eventually play up the role of dietary fat. While digging through boxes in the basement of Harvard's library, University of California San Francisco researcher Kristen Kearns uncovered documents that corroborate those events. Her paper trail reveals that the Sugar Research Foundation 
paid Harvard scientists to provide conclusions that were favorable to the industry. Their summary was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1967. Dr. Kearns and her colleagues published their account of those events in the Journal of the American Medical Association in September 2016. What's interesting about this study is that the sugar industry secretly funded Harvard scientists back in the 60s, very prominent researchers from the nutrition department at the School of Public Health, who had a big say in some of the dietary recommendations that were forming related to heart disease during that time. And so they paid these guys about $50,000 in today's dollars to write this review where they synthesized the evidence looking at the links between sugar and heart disease and fat and heart disease. And they used some, let's say, sneaky tactics to arrive at the conclusion that sugar was not linked at all to heart disease, when actually the evidence at the time was a lot stronger than you might think. Uh, from the internal documents that I found, I, I could see that the sugar industry recognized as early as the 1950s that if Americans were encouraged to eat a low-fat diet, then their profits would increase by a third because if you're going to eat low-fat, you're going to have more sugar in your diet. So you were finding evidence of this, if you will, tampering with science down in the, the, <laughs> the basement archives of Harvard. You couldn't interview the scientists involved because they had passed away, but did you reach out to the Sugar Research Foundation, which eventually became the Sugar Association, for their comment on all this? Yeah, so the Sugar Association is a trade group based in Washington, D.C. that represents cane and beet sugar, which is table sugar, sucrose. Uh, I didn't contact them directly related to the article. However, as the article ended up getting so much media attention, they had the chance to comment on it a, a few times in the media. And their, their standard response is that, oh, it's ancient history and it's not related to what we do now and everything's fine now. How aggressive was uh, the sugar industry in terms of, well, the Harvard scientists, for example? I mean, they certainly didn't tell them exactly what to write. Did they just simply select those uh, reports that look good and kind of bury the rest? Or did they sort of give them incentives to come to certain conclusions? How did that go? Well, we don't, you know, like you said, we couldn't interview anybody. So the uh, information we have are, are from documents from a long time ago. Uh, and it's also not a complete record of the document. So it is kind of a limited view into this historical event. But, you know, we can see the money that they paid them. We can see their correspondence going back and forth between the researchers and the sugar industry executives and that executives are sending the scientists particular articles that they want them to critique. The industry got to see drafts before uh, the article was published. You know, they corresponded back and forth at least 20, 25 times, you know, related to this article. That's not normally how science works. But, you know, most Americans don't read the New England Journal of Medicine or anything like that. And so uh, since these articles were published in these journals, these professional journals, how did they influence the public? Where, where did the public get the information? Well, it was a combination of things. So they, they funded research, but they also put the results of that research out into the media through press releases and spokesmen and, and lots of other, you know, obvious public relations techniques. So the, the research was just one part of their strategy that would inform the messages that they put out.
Kristen Kearns, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Kristen Kearns is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of California, San Francisco. Up next, what the tactics of big sugar might have in common with big oil and big tobacco. It's our monthly look at critical thinking, skeptic check, not so sweet. The sugar industry's effort to mislead the public about the link between sugar and obesity and sugar and coronary heart disease is familiar to Harvard professor of history of science, Naomi Oreskes. Dr. Oreskes has researched and written extensively on how the fossil fuel industry worked for years to sow doubt and confusion about climate change even after scientific consensus was reached. In doing so, Big Oil borrowed a page from the playbook of Big Tobacco, which had challenged and watered down research about the dangers of smoking. Those industry tactics were the subject of Dr. Oreskes' co-authored book, Merchants of Doubt. Now, if big sugar isn't borrowing the same tactics, it's certainly following a similar path, says Dr. Reskis, and provides us with a good reason for thinking critically about industry-funded research. Naomi, Dr. Kristen Kearns explained how the sugar industry secretly paid researchers for favorable coverage. That was 50 years ago. Why does this matter today? Any time that an industry deliberately promotes disinformation, it does a disservice to the American people, to its customers, to policymakers, to all of us who have to make informed decisions in our lives. The other reason why this is really damaging and speaks to the work that I do on the history of climate science and other areas, when I give public lectures, it's very common for someone in the audience to say, well, scientists are always getting things wrong. Why should we believe them about climate change? And if I query the questioner and say, well, well, what exactly do you have in mind? Almost invariably, the examples that people cite are from nutrition. And very often, the example that people cite is this issue of sugar and fat in the diet. So if people think that science is unreliable because we've got it all wrong about sugar and fat, then that undermines their belief in science more broadly. So knowing now that, in fact, the reason why there's so much confusion about the issue of sugar and fat is because the industry was deliberately trying to confuse not just consumers but also doctors and public health officials. This puts the whole question of the reliability of science in a very, very different light. All right. Well, that sounds significant indeed. I understand that uh, there were some researchers from Harvard who were paid the equivalent of $50,000 in today's money by the Sugar Research Foundation, the SRF, uh, to shape the data in favor of the sugar industry. Now, you're a professor at Harvard. How did the university... <laughs> I am indeed. Well, okay. Presumably, they didn't try and pay you. But, you know, how, how did Harvard respond to that? I mean, why would their faculty go along with this? Well, so there's two different questions there. The faculty go along with these things for the same reason that anyone goes along with any form of corruption, because it's attractive either for the money, which is the obvious answer in this case, or sometimes for ideological reasons. We know that many scientists who worked with the tobacco industry did so because 
on ideological principles, they thought that the government should not intervene in the marketplace to regulate tobacco and that individuals were responsible for taking care of their own public health. But, but so it's not necessarily money, but it often is either money or a combination of money ideology and, of course, rationalization. We know that rationalization is a very powerful force in the human psyche. So if someone comes to you and says, we'd like to pay you to do research on this topic, it's quite easy for a scientist to rationalize that and say, well, research is good. We should do research. Research is what we believe in. And so it's very easy for an academic or even a university as a whole to justify this on the grounds that we are advancing knowledge, but without also acknowledging the ways in which this information can be misused by the sponsors. You know, this may be just a consequence of housing prices in California, but, you know, $50,000, yeah, that's real money, but that isn't like winning the lottery. And I, I kind of wonder whether $50,000 would <laughs> induce them to, to do research that uh, they knew was somehow tainted. Well, it's it, it's very sad. I think one of the things we've learned from our work is that often it actually it is amazing how cheaply you can buy scientists. I'm sorry to say, but it's true. And sometimes I've seen examples of scientists who were bought for as little as five thousand dollars. And I was thinking, well, I could just go out and buy some scientists, you know. <laughs> so I could I could use my honoraria or you know or my book royalties to buy scientists. So it's sad actually how inexpensive it is to buy some scientists. And I think that part of the answer to that, though, is that, remember, scientists need money to do their work. And many scientists feel underfunded and underappreciated. So if someone from industry comes along, and first of all, it usually begins with flattery. We know from our research that often the initial approach has nothing to do with money. It involves someone from industry contacting a researcher and saying, we think your work is really, really interesting. Could we come and talk to you a little bit about it? And maybe they've identified a researcher who has done some work independently, legitimate scientific work, that in some way, shape, or form the industry thinks could be useful to them. So an example that we've studied closely from the history of tobacco is the tobacco industry approached researchers who worked on asbestos and the relationship between asbestos and lung cancer. So these are honest researchers. They're doing real work. The work is completely legitimate. But... Now the industry approaches them and says, well, we'd like to help you do this work. We think it's really important for people to understand the relationship between asbestos and lung cancer. And the researcher says, great, I'd love more support for my research. The researcher takes the money but doesn't fully realize that the industry is now going to use that research to try to deny the link between smoking and lung cancer by blaming those lung cancers on asbestos. And that's very similar to what we saw happen here in this case, where the industry tried to deny the harms of sugar by focusing attention on the harms of fat. Let, let's look at some of the specific methods used to obscure the truth of scientific research, if you will. The overall strategy is apparently, as you write, to deny, deny, deny. Maybe you could give an example of how that's done and why it's effective. Well, in the case of climate change, which is the thing we've looked at most closely, we've seen now for 25 years a kind of campaign or a program of denial of the scientific evidence. And in our own work, we were able to show that we can trace this back to 1989. So as soon as the scientific community began to say, Houston, we have a problem, we actually have evidence that climate change may be underway, we began to see pushback against that scientific evidence. And it takes a variety of forms that are used at different times in different places, but one is to deny that there is climate change. 
Another is to say, well, there may be climate change, but it's not caused by people, or we don't really know what's causing it, even though scientists say, actually, we do know. Another is to say, well, there might be climate change, and maybe people are causing it, but it's too expensive to fix, or there is no fix. Or another is to say, well, we could fix it, but it would wreck the economy, cost too many jobs. And all of these different forms of denial get mixed up and used at different times in different places, depending upon the audience. Is there another factor here, Naomi, the willingness of the public in some sense to be misled? Is there any difference between the financial interests, for example, the public might have in denying climate change, right, or uh, in denying the insalubrious effects of sugar, the, the results of which might be quite visible when you try and put on your clothes? I mean, the, well, you know, the public has a, has a dog in this fight, right? Absolutely. And there are many reasons why people can fall into denial. And the, the most obvious one is that if the truth is bad news, we'd much rather not hear it. So nobody likes bad news. Nobody wants to be told that a habit they have that they enjoy, like smoking cigarettes, is very detrimental, not only to their health, but to the health of the people around them, and particularly the health of the people you love. I mean, imagine you're a smoker, and now you read about the evidence that secondhand smoke could actually kill your own children, that's a very disturbing finding. So what do you do? Well, one choice is you quit, but that's hard to do because nicotine is addictive. So another choice is to say, well, I'm not convinced. And now if someone comes along and tells you you shouldn't be convinced, tells you, well, the evidence is uncertain, we don't really know, so now you have a choice. You could accept the scientific evidence that says you're doing something profoundly harmful to yourself and the people around you, or, well, we're not really sure which answer is the one you would prefer, right? And this, we certainly see this with climate change. I'd just like to touch on the role of lobbying by uh, these industries. In the case of the sugar industry, in 2003, they put pressure on the World Health Organization when it recommended that... Uh, calories from sugar comprise merely 10% of your daily intake, and the, the industry wanted that set at 25%. They lobbied hard uh, with Congress to have this uh, World Health Organization report withdrawn and have even U.S. funding for that organization cut off. It didn't do that, but can you discuss the role of such strong-arm tactics affecting politics as opposed to being aimed at the public? Yeah, this part really breaks my heart because this really is so venal. And these companies know that their products are dangerous. And instead of accepting that and, and thinking about diversifying into other areas, you know, finding other products to sell, other ways to serve the marketplace, they put pressure on public health organizations not to tell the truth about what we actually know. We've seen this with sugar. We've seen this with pesticides. We've seen this with endocrine-disrupting chemicals. And it is a gigantic distortion of the scientific enterprise. And it results in reports being written that are often not actually reflective of the best scientific information we have. And then that can sometimes be then used against scientists later. So, well, you told us that sugar was actually okay. And it wasn't that the scientists wanted to say that. The scientists knew that that was not actually the best representation of the available information. But they were pressured not to take, quote, too extreme a view. And I saw a very good example of this just recently. I was on a panel discussion or listening to a panel discussion that involved a very wonderful public health expert from the United Kingdom who was really trying hard to speak in a reasonable way and to work with industry. And one of the things she said when she was talking, she was referring to sugary drinks and sugary snacks. And she said, well, these are foods that you should eat in moderation. But that's wrong. 
These are not foods that you should eat in moderation. These are foods that you should not eat at all. <laughs> really, there's no reason to be drinking a sugary soda from the point of view of nutrition and public health. Now, if you feel the need to drink sugary sodas or eat sugary snacks, or in my case, eat chocolate, that's okay. You can make that choice as an individual, but you should know that that's a choice you're making to eat something that provides no benefit from the point of view of nutrition. So why did she say we should eat these things in moderation? Well, that's the language of the industry. So even though she's a very wonderful person, she was in fact, co-opted might be too strong a word, but she had adopted the framing of the industry probably because, you know, she's trying to work with these people and she's trying to seem like a reasonable person. And I understand that. So it's not really a criticism of her as an individual, but it's saying this is the problem we have, that scientists who want to be reasonable and don't want to seem like hysterical alarmists will actually be influenced by the industry to say things that are actually wrong, that are false. Well, then, all right, the problem seems fairly straightforward or at least uh, visible, put it that way. Uh, what's the solution? I mean, do you have, I don't know, some sort of legislation that the, the industry can't fund the scientists? That that sounds not only impractical, but also not a good idea from several points of view. I mean, how do, how do you solve this problem? Well, I think the leading scientific organizations like the American Association for the Advancement of Science, for example, and others need to take this on as a serious topic to really think through ways that this could be addressed. But one thing that could be done by every university and every scientific journal is disclosure. I think one of the first steps we can take that we know makes a difference is simply by insisting that in all cases, in all circumstances, scientists have to say who's funding the work. That won't guarantee that the integrity is protected, but it will go a long way to making all of us a lot more mindful about how certain results can be distorted, in some cases even subconsciously, by who's funding it. The second thing we could do is disclosure of data. We know that many companies fund research that when the results are adverse to their product, they suppress that data. That doesn't have to be the case. We could have regulations that say when you do research, you have to publish that data and that the suppression of scientific data is a kind of fraud and that should be illegal. And I think if we just did those two things, full disclosure funding and full disclosure of data and results, that would go a long way towards addressing much, if not all, of this problem. Naomi Oreskes, thank you so very much for speaking with us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Naomi Oreskes is professor of the History of Science and affiliated professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Harvard University. She is the co-author of Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming. Well, thanks to the people who are sweethearts to work with, senior producer Gary Niederhoff, operations manager Barbara Vance, and intern Sarah McQuaid. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life, including scanning the skies with its Allen Telescope Array. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to our monthly look at critical thinking, Skeptic Check. This episode, not so sweet. 
If you'd like to hear more Skeptic Check or other Big Picture Science episodes, well, you'll find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer listening to over-the-air radio because radio offers you a suite of program choices, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like this show. You recording? Can you hear me? Is this appropriate? Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org.